This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Trafficked Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. And a special note about this episode. Today's story deals with topics of race, bigotry, and violence in a way that may be particularly upsetting to some listeners. I don't consider myself a terrorist. Now, is that something I'd be opposed to if I thought it would help us take power in the United States? No. I met this 28-year-old while reporting a TV episode about the growing global network of white supremacists. He asked us to call him Arthur. He wore a mask and asked us to alter his voice. How did you find your neo-Nazi beliefs? I was looking for a worldview, for an ideology, to explain why things were going so haywire. Political discord, racial discord, people being so alienated, shootings, drug addiction. I felt that there must be something that could stop all of this from happening. And he found his answers online, on a white supremacist forum. In my reporting for this episode of the TV series, I was shocked by the online network of white supremacists who operate much like a trafficking network. Only, they're not putting drugs in people's bodies or guns in their hands. They're putting violent ideas in their heads. What are your thoughts on the New Zealand shooter? I think the only thing he did wrong was that he didn't kill more. That is such a horrific thing to say. I mean, I, I, do, you, do, you, do you... Is it is it for the shock value that you say these things? Not for shock value at all. If you have an invasion coming into your country, you don't politely ask the people invading to leave. You kill them. I'm Mariana Van Zeller, the host of the National Geographic TV series Trafficked. Each week on the series, I dive into a different black market and meet the people who make their living inside it. But this is a little different. From National Geographic and Muck Media, this is the Trafficked Podcast. Each week, I'll bring you the story of one person who rose to power inside a shadow industry, how they thrived there, and how their power eventually crumbled. This week, I'm talking to a man who was once a notorious skinhead. Frank Mink wasn't always a white supremacist, and he isn't one now. He wrote a book called Autobiography of a Recovering Skinhead about his journey into and out of this extremist movement. The character played by Edward Norton in the movie American History X was loosely based on his life. The story of Frank's radicalization helps me to better understand white supremacist groups, how they recruit, how they radicalize, and why so little is being done to stop them. More after the break. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The environment that Frank Mink grew up in was a tense one. He was raised in South Philadelphia in what he describes as a tough Irish Catholic neighborhood. My dad really never came around. My mom and me would struggle. She, we were on welfare sometimes on food stamps. And I remember that. I remember being embarrassed about that as a kid. There was neighborhood bigotry, the kind of intolerance that reinforced the separation between groups of people. Frank's dad's last name was Bertolini, marking his heritage as Italian. And as a kid, Frank learned quickly that wasn't an okay thing to be. My uncles used to always say, yeah, take that Dego name away from him, and you don't want to be a dirty Dego in this neighborhood. I remember my last name got changed from Bertolini to Mink, which Mink isn't even Irish, but as long as it wasn't Italian, it was cool. Mink was Frank's mother's name. And with that name, Frank says, the neighborhood was great. I was proud of my little Irish heritage background in this neighborhood, and uh, we have a lot of great traditions in South Philly, the Mummer's Day Parade, all this stuff comes out of my neighborhood. So I loved all that. The only part Frank didn't love was going home. Because at home, there was violence. Like the time Frank was taking care of his sister, his mom and stepdad's child. So yeah, I was about 12, and I was holding my sister, who was probably about one, in my arms. And I just felt this huge crack in the back of my head. For a second, it was like thunder for a second, but then I remember it didn't hurt that much. I just remember the shock of the punch. And I turned around and my stepfather's shaking his hand and screaming at me that I don't care about my sister and I wasn't paying attention enough to her and that she almost fell out of my arms. And, and I'm like, so you punched me while I'm holding her? And he just ran upstairs and started screaming at my mom about how my thick head broke his hand. He started screaming upstairs. And she came down that day and said, why were you not holding her right? And I was like, I wasn't. Okay, he just felt like punching me today. I lived in a home with a bully. Many days on his way home from school, Frank would stop on a busy street and just watch the cars speeding by. The thought process was, if I get hit by a car, I'll go to a hospital and I won't have to go home with my stepdad. That was it. When he was 13, Frank tells me his mom and stepdad threw him out. So he went to live with his dad in a different neighborhood. His school changed, and so did his perception of how he fit in. They go to this all-black school in the middle of the school year. I now am the new kid. You better believe I heard shit every day going to school. I started getting fights all the time, fighting teachers. And so I just, after a while, I was like, I can't take it. Another year went by. Frank turned 14. And he was spending the summer out of the city with his cousins in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. From South Philly to Amish country. Like, real Amish country, too. Like, no electricity. Horse and buggies and shit. 
He was far away from his tumultuous home life, out in this rural setting and with cousins that he really admired, especially his middle cousin, who was just a few years older than he was and who Frank thought of like a brother. So yeah, I show up at my cousin's farmhouse, as we called it, and I get up there and walk into his room. And his cousin's bedroom looked nothing like how Frank remembered it. The year before, punk rock, total skater, punk rock, anarchy signs, you know, suspension notices from school with knives through it, with boogies on the wall, I mean, punk rock. And this summer I go up there and that's not the way it is anymore. There was not just daggers in the wall with suspension notices or anything. There was newspaper articles about neo-Nazis and these uniformed-looking guys. I believe there's a picture of Hitler on his wall. A lot of iron crosses, swastikas, Confederate flags. You know, all the good symbols of human race. It wasn't just the decor. Frank says his cousin was also different. And uh, he comes walking in, and he's definitely not punk rock skater anymore. He looks different. He uh, shaved head. He had nicely cropped pants on with these boots. And he just looked different. He started asking his cousin about these new symbols and the ideas behind them. I knew what Nazi meant, but I didn't know what Neo meant. So I remember my cousin came home, and my first question was, what is Neo? And he just means, that means new. It's just new. It's a new kind. We're the new kind of Nazis. Those were the kids who Frank tagged along with all summer. These are just local white farm boys that live up in that area. And they would always come over to my cousin's house and they'd drink and they'd bring cars and girls and they had tattoos and shaved heads and they were cool. I mean, they brought beer and girls around. So they were all skinheads? Yeah, all skinheads. And now they liked me being around. Um, I was funny and also I, I grew up really in the city. Because seriously, there was times where people were like, you really take the bus with black people every day? I'm like... So they, they had no contact with black people up there? No, no, no. There was just a lot of those type of conversations where I felt that I mattered. Because my parents never asked me, Frank, what was your subway ride home like today when you have a black eye? They just didn't ask me any freaking questions. It's not my parents' parenting style. So just them guys asking, do you really take the bus with black people? Was someone saying, how's your day? People would say something about black and white people not getting along and we'll never get along, right? I'm going to an all-black school. I know that we're not getting along. So when these people were backing that up, it still backed up the knowledge that I was feeling and seeing every day. Racist claims, stories, and jokes were social currency for this group. And that was familiar to Frank. Well, when I was at one of my first real things that I would consider a neo-Nazi get-together was at an apartment in, in, in Reading, Pennsylvania. I remember they start talking about how the Jews and this Zionist occupational government, and they're siphoning off money from America through the Federal Reserve to give over to Israel to supply the, the motherland, right? I remember when I was a kid, uncles, people that I would consider good people in my life, even to this day, but they would say things like, oh, I went to the store today and Johnny tried to Jew me. And everybody laughed. Oh, you know, Johnny, he always trying to Jew somebody. Ha, ha, ha. And I remember asking my uncle when I was a kid, I remember asking him, like, why is that funny? Like, what do you mean Johnny tried to, like, what's that mean? And he goes, well, Frank, Jews are always notorious for money. He's like, you know what? You'll get the joke when you're older, though. 
You'll get the joke when you're older, trust me. It's a good joke. So when Frank was in Reading, listening to skinheads explain their worldview. It unlocked the joke. I must be older. I get it. And I want to be older in this world. And that's when I got into this. I was, wow, that's the truth. My uncle said, I'll know the truth. These people are revealing the truth to me. In reality, these conversations, encouraging fighting and explaining why life was unfair, was the beginning of Frank's radicalization. These people are telling me I'm not wrong for hating these people that I'm fighting with. That's what all they're doing. They're saying we're never going to get along. Multiculturalism is never going to happen in this country. And genocide of white people is going to happen if, if we fall into this trap. And I hook, line, and sinker, I'm in. He tells me about a night when his cousin and his skinhead friends took Frank to a nightclub in downtown Lancaster. And while we were there, I'm meeting all these other neo-Nazis that I don't know. I know all my cousin's friends, but I don't know all these other yahoos. So, um, you know, like, well, we're going to go in the club and there's going to be a couple fights. We were like, yeah, we're going to get in there and tear some people up. And I remember just standing with them and they went into the nightclub and they did tear people up. And at the end of the night, all the neo-Nazis were waiting outside the club. And when these people come walking out, they see us and they go the other way. They don't want to walk by us. But this look of fear of, please get away from me, leave me alone, this look, I've seen it. And I just remember, like, loving it, loving that moment. Why? Ah, it felt so good. You know, for once, someone finally fears me. You know, for the last 14 years of my life, I fear everything. I fear my parents. I fear my step-parents. I fear my school. I fear if I was going to have enough fucking food to eat today. And now somebody fears me. It's on, you know? That was, that was a very powerful moment. A moment so powerful that when the older guys made a joke about his long hair, Frank says he was ready. They took out a pair of clippers. And I was like, let's do it now. Let's do it. Did you know what that meant? Yeah, absolutely. Like every guy that was there tonight took turns doing one row of my hair with the clippers. Every time. Like every guy would be like, all right, here you go, white power or whatever. They would say that? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, we would be like, go white power. And what changed for you that day? I was part of something, you know? And I remember, I remember waking up the next morning and memories feel in my head and it was like, I did it. And uh, With a sense of pride? A sense of pride and a mystery. What's going to happen next? It symbolized protection, safety, care. But I don't know this stuff then. I don't know that. I'm just a kid getting accepted into something. I, I, you know, I can't put my finger on it. Back then, you know, I was a scared little boy. At the time, I was hungry, and these people were, you know, were there. And I was willing to buy into any of this doctrination. I didn't lose my humanity. I gave it up for acceptance. More after the break. Frank spent the summer with his new friends, meeting up and making connections with skinheads in other nearby towns, like Lancaster, Reading, and Allentown. And start fully getting into the dress, the ideology, 
the, the fashion, everything. There was a thriving neo-Nazi scene in Pennsylvania, and Frank dove right in, learning their meeting spots and getting to know their leaders. Mark Thomas is this famous neo-Nazi at the time, famous Christian Posse Comitatus, which is a gang, which is a militarized Christian gang, and he's kind of the leader of it in Pennsylvania. And he used to also do these Bible studies. And in the back of the property, he would have like these tents sometimes, and we would go in there, and the women would go, go learn how to be nurses and cooks for the race war, you know, because they have their job, and we, our job is to fight in the race war. We learn about guns, and we learn about how to shoot certain guns. I know from my own reporting that the Posse Comitatus is classified as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. It was founded on a disturbing religious belief system that identifies Jews as the progeny of Satan and black people as subhuman. These were the Bible studies Frank was being taught. So now you're taking a welfare kid from Philly, giving me a gun, and giving me a Bible and telling me everything I'm about to do is for the goodness of God to destroy the Jews from the planet Earth. We used to hold a holy Bible and AK in our hands all the time. Frank had found validation and camaraderie with these extremists. Now he was being told that the violent fights he and his friends started were actually blessed. And as a reward for his growing level of involvement, he got a tattoo on his neck. So I had earned this, that tattoo on my neck to become part of the Council of White Combat. Which was like a leadership council. So that's what that, that symbol was. It was a, actually a swastika with a Celtic cross in the middle of it. When he returned to Philadelphia in the fall, his transformation was pretty much complete. His head was fully shaved, he wore combat boots, he looked, thought, and even acted like a skinhead. The only friends I hung around were neo-Nazis, right? You can't kind of be a neo-Nazi and then go live a normal life sometimes, like, you know what I mean? Like, so I don't hang around people who might tell me that that thing is wrong, unless it's time for me to go into debate mode and fight mode. So uh, I didn't lose any friends once I got the swastika on my neck. Frank's friends were the other kids with swastika tattoos, and they had rivals. There was a bunch of left-wing communist punk rockers and stuff that, and I mean, they wore like hammers and sickles, so it was like perfect to be our enemy. But they kind of hung out in that alley, and we went down there, got in a couple little fights with them, stole a couple of their girlfriends, and next thing you know, we took over the alley. And we had more troops than they did. Frank uses words like troops and enemies that are borrowed from the military. And when I talk to people who are current white supremacists, I notice the same kind of language. This is a war over power, territory, and membership. And Frank threw himself into recruiting others for that war showing up at local high schools and making friends with the kids he thought would be most likely to join him. There's a couple of tricks I learned. Like, do you want the smartest kids? No, you know, you might want a couple to, you know, write up the leaflets for you, but you know, I'm not recruiting them. You know, am I recruiting good looking guys? Fuck no, I don't need no competition. The truth is I, I, I always re yeah, recruited the kid who I knew didn't go home at night. 
I remember if there was a kid who was saying, yo, I gotta be home at five o'clock with my parents for dinner every night. I can't go to the park and drink with you guys. I knew that was a hard recruit, right? Because if, if you have any respect for your parents and your parents go, what the fuck are you getting into? I think that was a hard recruit, always. Frank tells me he looked for kids like himself. The ones who didn't have a strong relationship with their parents. The ones who were angry and who were used to getting picked on. Now there's some fucking neo-Nazi showing up with a swastika tattooed on his neck going, you ain't fucking with them no more. Leave them alone. You better believe I get their loyalty. Just as Frank had discovered in the fight in Lancaster, people were afraid of him and his neo-Nazi friends. That shift in power was as intoxicating to Frank's recruits as it had been to him. So every day when I got there, more and more kids would show up with their head shaved. More and more kids would show up with combat boots on. More and more kids would show up listening to some crazy-ass neo-Nazi music I gave them. And now I just got to pound home the fucking beliefs, which are easy. Hey, you see all them gangster kids? Fuck them kids. You know what? Come be, with, come be proud of your heritage. Come join us. Be proud of your heritage. F them gang kids. Yeah, that's what's up. Essentially, what he was doing was pitting white kids against black kids the same way he was radicalized, by telling them that other groups and cultures were a threat to their heritage and pride. And he used that threat to justify extreme violence. We got called the terror squad, I think, by others at first because people were jokingly saying, like, we bring terror into our victims or into our enemies. So we carried that name with a badge of honor, the terror squad. We would say, okay, let's go up uptown to the gay section, or uh, let's go over to where the synagogue is, and, um, you know, let's start out the night that way. He tells me that he and the terror squad would spend their nights carrying out missions against their chosen enemies. What's a typical mission that you'd go on? Firebomb outside my gay bars, or and put things in people's gas tanks. How often would you do things like this? All the time, every weekend. So every weekend there was a different sort of attack that you were part of, or a different mission? Yeah, yeah. You know, your cars might get napalmed, or just Molotov cocktailed, something like that. Some of the scenes he describes to me are brutal and surreal. Even more so if you remember that they were just teenagers. We were 15, 16 year olds. We were walking through the alleyways of Philly, like Center City Philly, and we just watched Clockwork Orange. So we were trying to reenact the scene from Clockwork Orange where when they were singing the part, singing in the rain, and they would kick the person, they'd go, oh, oh, to the beat of the song. So we were gonna try and do that, that night. By hitting? The person. Yeah, a, hom- a homeless person or a gay person or a black person or even, again, anyone that wasn't one of us and, and didn't say they believed what we believed. You have to dehumanize them. You can't attack something if you humanized it, so you're our, you're our enemy. I didn't think I was being evil back then. I thought I was standing up for the white race. I thought that, you know, this bad stuff was all going to come to my, my heritage. Did you feel bad or guilty while you were doing this? Did I ever have feelings for any of the people that we were doing harm to? Not in the moment, no. You know, you're doing everything with your comrades. These are your boys, you know, guys go out from frat parties and go to parties. We didn't do that type of things, you know? This is what we did. 90% of my income came from illegal activity. 
selling guns, getting rid of guns, selling stolen property. Again, we're told that we can live this way because in the end result is that we're going to eliminate Jews from the planet, that you can live and do anything you want. You can commit as much crime as you want. You can lie to everybody in the world. You can lie. You can do whatever you want because the end goal is to always rid the world of Jews. Frank was now a homeless teenager, constantly on the move. He was committing crimes with skinheads in one state, then fleeing to another. Eventually, he settled in Springfield, Illinois, where there was a neo-Nazi safe house and a growing number of skinheads. Frank brought his talent for recruiting, and he wasn't operating in a vacuum. I was just copying off of what Tom Metzger was doing in California at the time, right? He had a show called Race for Reason. Tom Metzger is a notorious neo-Nazi. He was one of the first white supremacist leaders to recognize the importance of music and television as tools for recruiting young people. So he was going to start sending us his beta uh, disc or his beta footage of his show, and we were going to bring it to a local cable access channel and get it put on. But when we filled out the application, we seen that the application was uh, mostly used for wanting to get yourself on TV. And that's when we were like, well, let's see what we can do. Let's put our name down and see what the hell these people got to say. When I interviewed current white supremacy leaders, I was surprised by how many of these media tactics are directed at young people, especially young men. Now there are memes and YouTube and encrypted chat groups. But when Frank was a teenager, there were concerts and cable access television. And the TV station operators felt their hands were tied by free speech laws. I mean, I remember I was just like, you're kidding me. Uh, eventually, they approved it. Frank and his buddy now had a late night show where they could say whatever to whomever they wanted. They called it The Reich. We were in a racist Wayne's world. Like we did little skits and we had guys go up with wigs on and they would sing like these really stupid songs. And yeah, man, we fucking had it going on. Late night with fucking Frank. The show was both a recruitment tactic and entertainment for those already in the movement. There was a long list of people who were the targets of Frank's hate on the show and on the streets. We were fighting anti-racist action back then. That's who we fight as neo-Nazis, mostly. The anti-fascist movement, and you can call them Antifa or Antifa. Frank tells me a group of anti-fascists called SHARP, skinheads against racial prejudice, had been interfering with his group's tactics for years. We wore different patches, like the, the anti-fascist in us, like we could see each other from across the street and knew who was who, from your patches to the color shoelaces you wore and your, your boots, we knew what you were. So it was, a, it was a war, it was a huge war. There was this one anti-fascist kid that kept coming around. So, he tells me, he came up with another mission. And uh, I kidnapped him on Christmas Eve, and that was, routine that was nothing new we were going to hold him for ransom and when we held him for ransom nobody would pay his ransom so we were stuck so we just tortured him and we videotaped the whole thing why just to show all the new recruits who thought this guy was cool that he ain't cool like remember this guy you thought was cool and how did you torture him um just 
uh, beat his face in, hit him with guns, pistol whipped him a bunch of times, humiliated him, just made him cough his own blood. They were stripping off his face and made him just cuff it and said, don't you get no blood on our carpet or we're going to kill you here now, right now, if you do that. And we did that through Christmas into Christmas Day. Even after all this brutal abuse, the victim managed to survive. And after a while, they let him go. And he went to the cops, told the cops what happened. They couldn't wait to bust me. But it was a few weeks later when cops found the evidence, Frank's video recording. He traded his camcorder for a tattoo around New Year's with the footage still on it. He forgot to remove the tape. And from there, he wasn't hard to find. In fact, he still had his regular cable access show. That's where they arrested me at. Because I'm so brilliant, so let me sneak back into town to go to the taping of my next TV show. And of course, they were, you know, undercover cameramen and all this shit. Frank was arrested and charged with aggravated kidnapping and assault with a deadly weapon. He was 17 years old, facing trial as an adult, and 15 years in prison. But they were just done playing with me. Frank's case didn't go to trial. According to him, just before jury selection, his public defender called him to present an offer. Plead guilty for a shorter sentence. And he took it. How much time in prison did you end up doing for that? Uh, I got sentenced to three to five years. He was moved from county jail to a state prison in southern Illinois, where Frank found older neo-Nazis who'd look out for him. But he also hung out with the guys his own age. And they were the kinds of people he thought he hated. And that later on, right after that, I meet this black kid named G. He was a lot shorter than I was, and he was younger than I was. And uh, he came up to me one day and just said, Joe, do you know how to play Spades, the card game? And um, I was like, no. You know, and he's like, okay, let me show you. And he started showing me, like, all these little rules and how to cheat. And then we started playing people for money. Me and this young little black kid who's originally from Chicago and this former neo-Nazi from Philly are playing spades against these old heads and we're taking their peanut butter and jellies. I would have stacks of peanut butter and jellies. So me and him just become cool. But Frank still had his neo-Nazi buddies. And one day, he was talking with them about a recent crime committed by two black men. And I, just being me and being around my friends, I said, and here it just goes back to being typical N-word stuff. And I say that word all the time. That word flew out of my mouth so easily. That night, I'm playing spades with G, and he's not cheating. He's not coming back in the cards he's supposed to. He would throw back something else that was throw our game off, right? And so at the end of the game, we'd lose, you know, and we're walking away, and I was like, yo, what are you doing? And he goes, I guess it's just typical. N-word stuff, huh? And he turned away and walked. Like, I was my friend. Do you think that it was, you know, at this point you had done so many, so much harm to so many people, you'd committed violent crimes against people, um, you'd hurt people physically. Um, do you think this just it was different because it was the first time that you saw how your actions and your words were hurting somebody that you actually, that you liked, that you considered your friend? Or, act, or somebody that you just, even that you knew? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was I mean, I could 
picture that moment in my I could picture him right now turning away and walking away from me after he said it. I could picture it right now. And, and you're also getting very emotional just talking about it. I, I stabbed him in the back in that moment. You know, I stabbed him in the back. So. Frank tells me that in prison, he started doubting his own beliefs in moments like the one with G. But those doubts wouldn't last long. So what I started to do was to justify being part of this movement was like, all right, I'm not going to hate black and Latino and Asians anymore. I, I was like, you know what? We're all equal. Fine, fine. I'm down. But the Jews, that's where it is. So he kept returning to this core anti-Semitism and the conspiracies that fueled it, that the reason life was unfair was the fault of the Jews. By this time, Frank was an adult, recently released from prison and facing the reality that he still had to eat. He needed a job, and it wasn't coming easily. I got a big swastika on my neck, skinhead written on my knuckles. This is not good people skills, and HR is not hiring me. Finally, uh, a guy gives me a job. This a buddy of mine offers me a job doing antique furniture for the weekend, just carrying it out for an antique show in Jersey. There was only one problem in Frank's mind. He says, uh, the guy's a Jew. But, he says, he needed this job. So he agreed to take on a weekend moving gig. I go up to go work for this man, work my butt off, got paid tons of money in tips. And when he gets paid me in tips, I, I figured he's going to come up to me and he's going to Jew me. He's going to say, yo, like, I know you made $600. I only owe you $100 for each day. You made your money, right? I'm waiting for all these anti-Semitic, ignorant things that he's going to come up to me on the last day, and I'm going to fight with him. I already have $600, and he owes me three. So I walk up, and he's like, I owe you money. And I'm like, yeah, you do. God, that's right. Okay, here's 100 200 Here's 300 He's like, you're a really good worker. Here's an extra 100 bucks." So drives him back to Philly, offers, says, hey, man, you want a full-time job? You're a good worker. Come work at my warehouse up in northeast Philly. And I go to go work for this Jewish man. Frank says the two of them started spending a lot of time together on jobs. I was always driving in a truck with this man. we pick up furniture and bring it back to, to other warehouses. And he had other employees, but I drove a lot with him. You know, I loved working with him. He says his boss only had one rule. He said he doesn't give a rat's ass what we believe this don't break his shit. And that's how he worked. And he didn't care. He just always treated me fairly. But this this man, I would do things where if I made mistakes, I'd always go, oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, I'm so stupid. And he got tired of me doing that. And he came over to me and said, stop saying you're stupid. He said you're one of the smartest people I know or something like that. So when Frank accidentally broke his boss's one rule while moving a piece of furniture... I broke a marble top table, which he should not have broken. He says he expected a fight. Or at least docked pay. And he said, here, I'll see you on Monday. And when I walked away from that truck, I said, I'm done. Frank didn't want to be a skinhead anymore. God consistently put too many people in my life to keep saying, who the hell are you to judge, Frank? You're the worst of the worst, really. And you run around the world judging who the hell are you? And hating, right? And hating, and hating what he made. Hating what he made. And so I, you know, and it just started to change my life. Frank tells me he stopped going on missions and started pulling away from his skinhead buddies. But this didn't go unnoticed among his former friends. 
He says he turned up at a funeral for one of his old crew members. They jumped me at a funeral, and they picked me up and they threw me down a flight of steps. And I didn't land on the first maybe seven, so I landed on like eight, nine, and then down. So I was like, yeah, I was a pretty bad little fall. And I remember thinking like, this is it? This is it? We're done? I can leave. We're, we're, we're cool here, right. right? You know? And then, uh, and I bounced. Walking away from racist thoughts wasn't as easy, and it didn't happen overnight. Frank tells me he kept catching himself in moments. My quick thought process will also go, will go to racism sometimes, right? And I'll give you an example. Uh, a black guy would be selling food stamps on a street corner, and I drive by him and I go, see, that's what the movement was, like, look what he... Except now, Frank had other thoughts that would interrupt this voice in his head. Wait a minute, my mom sells her food stamps. She's always done that. She sold them out of her house. Okay, because she's not on a street corner. And, you know, so it's like, I could real quickly place like, oh, I know someone that does that. Oh, I know someone, you know? That, and that happened for about a year. And then eventually you also removed your tattoos? And then I removed my tattoos. And a lot of neo, a lot of formers are doing this. What was that like? It's amazing. It's an amazing thing for us to have this done. It's been more than 20 years since Frank left the white supremacy movement. And, like combating the voice in his head, he says defining his life as a former has been a process. A process that started with telling his story. In 1995, Frank went to the FBI hoping to share his first-hand account of what it's like inside neo-Nazi groups. This was right after the Oklahoma City bombing. So they listened, and they even suggested he contact the Anti-Defamation League. Now, many years later, Frank still regularly speaks against extremism and hate groups on behalf of the ADL. In today's world, I work with a lot of former jihadist, a lot of um, former neo-Nazi, former gang members, former you name it. And we have a whole network of us. And I really wish that people would tap more into us. We are the people that have uh, this antibody to extremism in us. And, you know, it's not just hate, it's, it's just this extremism. And uh, a lot of us formers have the antibodies to that extremism in us. Those antibodies, as Frank calls them, are important because the problem persists. How bad is the white supremacy problem in our country right now? It's the worst it's ever been because it's hidden. It's hidden under a mask of, of fake patriotism, and which is just nationalism. Frank says he recognizes echoes of his former beliefs in current nationalist groups. When I spent time with the Proud Boys for the TV show, I learned that many group members claim that they're not racist, that their core belief is the superiority of Western culture, which they believe is under attack. They say all this while sporting symbols and flashing gestures associated with white supremacy and carrying lethal weapons. They use the same rhetoric that I used to use on my cable access show. They use the same rhetoric that I used to use in the pamphlets and all the other brochures and all the other talking points I had. And just like he did, Frank says they're tapping into fear. 
the communist fear, the socialist fear that is put in us is that we will live in squalor in little apartments next to brown people. I mean, that's the big fear, right? The same racist fears and hates he once had. I used to wake up with that same anger inside of me. That's what they wake up to every morning. That hate is in the pit of their stomach. When you have violence and hate and racism in your, your heart and your soul, it blocks you off from the sunlight of the spirit of humanity. So I have, I have pity for them. But not for their messages. I'm kind of like a racist guard dog, where I guard for racism. Do I smell fear? Do I smell bitterness? Do I smell ego? I smell fucking racism, right? And I just start barking. Frank's most recent project is tracking down and calling attention to former neo-Nazis who are now in law enforcement. I know that it is very dangerous for people that used to believe like I believe that are now in policing that have the power to pull black people out of their cars at 10 o'clock at night on a New Jersey turnpike. It's really scary. His fears are warranted. In 2006, the FBI warned its agents that white supremacists were getting jobs as police officers to infiltrate law enforcement agencies. And just last year, Frank testified before Congress Morning. Thank you. that as a young skinhead, he was encouraged to remove his tattoos and become a police officer. They told us to join law enforcement so we can give black people felonies so they would not be able to legally arm themselves and they would not be able to vote. He tells me about a recent project he worked on, identifying a man who was a member of a popular white supremacist band in the 1980s and early 90s. This man became a police officer and then a federal counterterrorism expert. The Department of Justice hired him to be part of the hub that holds all the information on domestic terrorist groups in America. Information used by federal agencies to stop attacks made by white supremacists. That is still going on in this country right now today. Frank's journey from being a neo-Nazi to hunting them, from committing and inciting racial violence to working to combat it, is full of shocking, often horrific moments. But believe it or not, there's still one more shocking turn. It started when he was talking to a man after an interview, a Jewish guy. He goes, you know your last name, the way it's spelled, M-E-E-I-N-K? That's Jewish. It's Dutch Jewish. Frank couldn't really believe what this guy was saying. But he went home and decided to order one of those online DNA tests. To find out that I'm Ashkenazi Jewish, right? Amazing. Like, just amazing. Here you are. Um, you, went, you went from being a white supremacist who hated Jewish people more than anything. Hated them. To years later receiving... Uh, a genealogy test telling you that you're Jewish and celebrating that yes. and being happy for it. Yeah. It was a complete blessing. And um, so I started to try to, to, to follow that path. And, and it's been humbling. Frank tells me that he converted to the Jewish faith. Judaism is the king of the activism religions. I mean, you basically are a fucking activist. Right? You learn all the gifts that God gives you so that you can go help humanity, not help yourself. That's what I've learned in Judaism. 
everything I give is for humanity, not for fucking Frank. Because I'll get real broken real quick when I start thinking about Frank. The Traffic Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is a companion to our TV series, Trafficked, from National Geographic and Muck Media. The TV series airs every Wednesday on National Geographic and is available now on Hulu. This episode was produced by Francesca Fenzi and our lead producer, Margaret Katcher. Our associate producer on this episode is Abby Spears. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Scott Kirk. Production help from Todd Benson. Recording assistance provided by Trevor Morris, Danny Carney, and Chapin Wilson. Original music by Jeff Morrow. Paula Benson is line producer. For National Geographic, Brian Gutierrez is special projects producer, and Jacob Pinter is special projects editor. Devar Ardalan is executive producer of audio at National Geographic. Executive producers for Nat Geo are Chris Albert, Bengt Anderson, and Sean Johnson. And from Muck Media, executive producers Jeff Plunkett, Darren Foster, and me, Mariana Van Zeller. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Tell your friends to rate and review the show if you've enjoyed what you heard. Special thanks to Mark Levenstein, Todd Herman, Aaron Pfeiffer, and of course, Frank Mink. <laughs>